Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The CEO of Sonovus, one of Canada's largest oil sands producers in Alberta, warns that Canada's oil price woes are reaching an emergency situation status. I spoke with Dan McTague, the chief petroleum analyst for GasBuddy.com. Vivian Krauss just finished a speaking tour about how U.S. foundations, tides and so on, pouring money into Canada to support environmental groups here as they use all possible tactics to delay and destroy the Canadian pipeline initiatives. After Justin Trudeau declared attacks on media are attacks on democracy, Canadian Washington Post columnist, political cartoonist and pundit J.J. McCullough tweeted, it's obvious what Trudeau's doing. The Canadian press is overwhelmingly pro-liberal and Andrew Scheer has recently attempted to observe this fact. Trudeau must therefore portray all criticism of the press as both illegitimate and evil. I spoke with J.J. McCullough. Great deal of response to the playback of Anne-Marie Gatto's totally frustrating experience with a federal Ministry of Health representative dodging and refusing to answer questions on the phone. Well, we had a part of that call that we hadn't played back yet. We did today. Listen. I was invited to attend a spiritualist evening. I'm very skeptical. The guest medium was Andrew Bing of the UK. During the evening, he zeroed in somehow on my life. It was unnerving. I spoke with him today. For 18 years, a Liberal Member of Parliament, even when he was an MP, he was heavily involved in analyzing what was going on as far as gasoline prices was concerned, the oil industry is concerned. He's now the Chief Petroleum Analyst for GasBuddy.com. Do you think, Dan, do you really believe, do you, does, what does your gut tell you? Is Trudeau committed to building pipelines or completing Trans Mountain? Well, whether he's committed or not, uh, whether his words uh, follow on action, the reality is this thing has become a lot worse of late than anything any of us could have possibly imagined just six months ago when uh, Canadian oil was actually, and here I'm not just talking about Canadian heavy oil, but even light oil, uh, was trading within about a $25 range to the world West Texas Intermediate benchmark. Uh, this has collapsed now to about 11.69 a barrel. Some will argue it's as high as $15 a barrel, but I think that's really looking for angels dancing on a pinhead. The reality here is that the loss, the total loss uh, to the Canadian economy is is devastating. And, you know, Roy, I, I stick to the gasoline side of things, and that's to let people know that the effect is far more than jobs, far more than not attracting investments, which I think your lead-up has certainly uh, you know, illustrated quite well and in spades, and the many who are involved, who are Canadians, who are committed to Canada as investors are saying, you know, if, if, uh, capital is leaving the country, is the reality that if I'm buying gasoline today, I'm paying a near 15 centiliter premium because my oil is not getting, our resources are not getting to market at fair price. And that's for that reason alone, if for no other reason, if this doesn't wake Canadians up, I don't know what will. But, uh, you know, everyone's celebrating in some regions of the country, 99 centiliter gasoline. That should have happened six months ago, and it didn't because, of course, we are, uh, we're suffering uh, as a country, uh, not just in terms of revenues, not just in terms of disinterest in investments. We're now looking at the real prospect of how to pay for social programs in this country. So even those who don't uh, take a car, even those who are committed to whatever kind of policies are out there, cannot but ask themselves the question, 
why is it that we have to work you know twice as hard to earn what we once did just a few years ago because the dollar uh, the Canadian dollar has uh, has been affected so dramatically that it no longer has the purchasing power that it once did and it's costing us not just gasoline but at the grocery checkout uh, for just about every commodity that we have and that affects everything from coast to coast whether or not they agree or understand what's happening with respect to our energy industry if we have another six months in succession like the last six months in succession where will we be well let's start with uh, what $11 a barrel gets you assuming that that's at least $35 below what we've seen as tradition for Western Canadian Select and the energy uh, pricing complex in general, which of course is our basket of all of our petroleum oil products, then that would lead to a net loss uh, on a given day, conservatively, at least $120 million. That's worth, in my estimation, at least a $40 billion loss to the Canadian economy. Now, continue that further, uh, assuming governments take revenues, royalties, economic activity, uh, that derives from that, as well as a stronger Canadian dollar, it means that governments are going to be short some 15, maybe even 18 billion dollars this year. And so social programs and other things that we value as Canadians in common are very much in trouble, not to mention the malaise associated with no one wanting to invest in Canada. I don't want to, you know, really <laughs> dream up a, a scenario that is absolutely, uh, you know, uh, negative, but the reality is that if you take away the most important contributor to our wealth, as, as, as a country, when no other country seems to have any trepidation with doing it uh, and finding themselves in this position, then the question is, what programs, what part of our standard of living do we wish to sacrifice? Because that is what is really at stake here. It's our standard of living, our ability to pay for things, our ability to make ends meet. And uh, no one's giving Canadians a, an increase in pay. Uh, if we start to lose that economic momentum, uh, another six months from now, I think we're going to be in a place that we uh, could never have imagined, and uh, many of us be scratching our heads wondering why. I'm from Eastern Canada, but I've seen this uh, this narrative. I've seen this play come for some time. As a parliamentarian in the 1990s, I saw what happened when the resource sector boomed. It allowed us to pay down the deficits and get uh, yes, it did. our country back on the road. Yes, it did. We now have a national debt, I think somewhere around $690 billion. Some people are actually saying that's no big deal. Yeah, as long as the economy is growing, but how do you grow when your your number one export is shrinking in value, and mm-hmm. substantially so? No country in the world gets under $40 a barrel for its oil. No region in the world gets that. Say that again. No country in the world gets less than $40 a barrel for its oil today. And what are we now getting? 56. What are we getting? 11.69. And why? We can't get our oil to, to markets. We, despite... Uh, you know, approvals, despite uh, companies doing their due diligence, following the rules. At the end of the day, everything we do in this country is subject to uh, perhaps uh, another level of interference. And that level of interference is leading to the inability for us to get our oil to market. And by the way, it's not just our oil uh, as heavy oil or light oil. The world wants more heavy Canadian oil, not just because of the price difference, but because guess what? Uh, prices for diesel are going through the roof, but they're dropping for gasoline. U.S. refiners who love Canadian heavy oil have difficulty taking their shale and turning it into diesel. They need more heavy oil in order to make up the difference. The world is heading towards diesel. Canada has the ability to supply that, but if it can't find the conduits, the uh, the pipelines to get that to market, not only does the world suffer, but more importantly, and firstly, Canadians are suffering. At a time when the world needs more Canadian oil, Canadians are allowing themselves to be hoodwinked, and uh, 
not allowing our own product to get to market. And I think it's very serious, not just for gas prices. No, it's critical. It's, 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 it, Dan, it is so far beyond any, beyond any political allegiances to be that not, that can't even be part of the discussion any longer. It has to be we have to take care of our economy. And if you go back to when the massive recession hit in 2009, Canada was the poster child for surviving it well yep. because we had done our due diligence as far as keeping our economy going was concerned. Now we're being warned by international investors, we're pulling our money out. Not only are we not putting money in, we're pulling our money out. And they're writing to the prime minister directly. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what the solution is, Roy, and there are days like today when I'm awfully glad I'm no longer in politics, but were I so, I think uh, I would make it the priority of the country to sort of suggest that the only uh, importance that uh, a representative can provide is to ensure that uh, there are jobs and that we maximize the value of the things that we do very well at. By the way, the only jurisdiction I know in the world that produces oil, that has the third largest deposits of energy, of uh, petroleum product, of crude, of hydrocarbons, and yet we and, and we have carbon taxes, and we have emission caps, and we have uh, you know, uh, a process uh, of, in which to restore, re- remedy those areas that we have uh, that we have degraded as a result of the extraction, and we are leading the world in SAG D type of technology. We are we are going through hoops to try to satisfy uh, the cleanest energy standards in the world, and yet we are the world's whipping post. And as a result, uh, for all the good that we're doing, we seem to be slipping, not gaining. And as, as a result of that, I think it does require a significant amount of refocus by Canadians who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think at the end of the day are, are smart enough to know that uh, they're not getting a good deal. The Canadian yeah. dollars weak, yeah. our products are not getting to market, and our standard living is, uh, is, wall- is willowing. We're importing every day 800,000 barrels of oil, foreign oil, to uh, satisfy the operational requirements of our own refineries on the East Coast. It, it is so, it's so far beyond common sense that I cannot understand why this isn't just ringing an alarm bell between everyone's ears. Oh, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. I noted this week something that uh, I don't think many picked up in the media, but uh, we certainly see it in states. The uh, large um, energy complex, refinery, PES, Philadelphia Energy Solutions, uh, has signed a contract with Western Canadian Oil Company to ship about 65,000, 70,000 barrels of oil all the way to Pennsylvania, all the way into Philadelphia uh, via rail. Uh, so they know there's a good thing there. Uh, they're likely to reopen one of their closed refineries uh, to do just that. So, you know, Americans uh, are wisely helping themselves to cheap, uh, uh, you know, efficient, uh, high-value-added product at a very unusual, historically low price. Uh, but it doesn't seem to register, I think, uh, with, with Canadians that uh, we're buying Brent-based oil at $70 a barrel versus our own oil, which uh, can do a little bit more and is certainly better for the Canadian economy and doesn't come with all the baggage uh, attached to so many of those other countries. Um, same for Vancouver, which has seen you know, uh, a need to import gasoline and diesel products from Singapore, Indonesia, you know, Taiwan. Uh, Russia is uh, sending oil right down to the uh, Pacific Northwest, just south of the Vancouver border, uh, into the uh, the uh, the sea, the what they call the Salish Sea, uh, and they're, they're, it's ironic because uh, oil is coming from other parts of the world to be processed, 
in the United States to be sold back into Canada, if not directly, then indirectly. And uh, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of a hue and cry, much less a, an appreciation for how bizarre that looks to yeah. the rest of the world. I, I don't think most Canadians are aware because it's it's just not been enough of a story. That's or it hasn't been covered enough. If you if, you know when I if I tweet that we're importing a hundred eight hundred thousand barrels of oil a day to satisfy the operational requirements of Eastern Canadian refineries, people retweet like crazy. Yeah. And, and that's just one. Barrels. That's just one minor stat. And then you you add just to this one minor. This is daily. You add to that the fact that you just pointed out we sell our oil or our oil is is eleven bucks. Was eleven bucks a barrel? Yeah, eleven sixty nine. Eleven sixty nine a barrel. That's what we sell it to the United States for. And but we're paying seventy a barrel to bring in the foreign stuff to be refined in on the East Coast. Yeah, dated Brent. Hello, uh, we on the East Coast. <laughs> I guess the. <laughs> The Atlantic. Uh, I don't know why I'm laughing. It, well, it's 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 ironic uh, and and puzzling. I think for the rest of the world that we would have allowed ourselves into the situation. Yeah, and that's and and uh, i.e. the letters of concern to our globe-trotting prime minister who likes to hang out with the other global leaders and make these global pronouncements about we can't have a trade uh, agreement or a trade meetings closing statement because of blah 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 blah. Look at our own country. Spend a little time here. Deal with the issues that Canadians are dealing with instead of yeah. what you're doing. Well, if, if you're going to go through the exercise of committing yourself to uh, ensuring that you reduce your carbon footprint, doing all the right things, consistent, doing all yeah. Yeah. The, the requirements, we're doing. at the end of the day, you wind up with uh, even less valuable uh, product. Is there any wonder that uh, many people are walking away from this yeah. policy? I'm more Dan, I've, I have to st- I have to stop here because I ignored the clock entirely. I was so <laughs> so tied up in talking to you. Thank you for the time today. Thank you for the time always, and thanks for the common Pleasure, sense Frank. advice. You take care, Chief. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, Chief Petroleum Analyst for GasBuddy.com, 18-year member of Parliament, Dan McTague. Vivian Kraus joins me at Fair Questions on Twitter, and if you, uh, you go to Fair Questions typepad.com you can read more of what Vivian has written and also in the Financial Post and the National Post and it's good to talk to you again how are you hi Roy hey thanks for having me back I don't know how you can be so cheerful well you know we're all Canadian that's right, right? that says it all a heck of a lot worse yeah it could be a heck of a lot worse but you just finished a, a speaking uh, tour in Alberta and you spoke about what you've talked to us about before, and I think it really is significantly important to get back at it, and that is why, or where the money's coming from, to stall and, uh, in, in many people's hope, to end any energy, any oil uh, exports out of Alberta, out of Canada. So remind us, please, where the money's coming from and what the agenda is. Sure. We're glad to do that. Well, you know, what, what you just mentioned, Roy, was that um, potential investors are now seeing it uh, risky to invest in Canada, not only in the oil and gas sector, but, you know, what I'm hearing from the banks, uh, it's spilling into, into other sectors of our economy. So that perceived uh, risk is no coincidence. That's what people need to know. That is the result of a, of a campaign, and it's called the Tar Sands Campaign, and it's been running for 10 years now. I've been following the money on it for about eight years. I accidentally stumbled into this uh, about eight years ago when I was actually trying to figure out who was funding 
a different campaign. It was a campaign against salmon farming. But, you know, if we read the strategy paper of this campaign, the tar sands campaign, it's very clear. The goal is, and I quote, to constrain the growth of the oil sands. They call it tar sands. How? By increasing the perception of financial risks by potential investors and choking off the necessary infrastructure. So, you know, this, this is where we're at today is no coincidence. This is exactly where this multi-million dollar uh, campaign wanted us to get. And, and, you know, this is no coincidence. So to, back to your question, who's funding this? Well, the campaign was started um, with funding from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And my understanding of it is that there have been more than a dozen um, charitable foundations, mostly from California, apart from the Rockefellers, who fund this. Uh, have, have been funding it, as I said, for, for more than a decade now. The interesting thing about it is that they're all members of an umbrella organization called the Consultative Group on Biological Diversity. And there, there are a couple of other, actually, organizations that the same foundations are members of. But what we have here is a campaign um, with a bunch of big funders in the background that, that nobody talks about, nobody even knows about. And then we have a bunch of other sort of intermediaries that do ghostwriting, um, write videos, create websites, do the social media, um, all that sort of thing. So it looks like it's a, a grassroots campaign, you know, but it isn't. And I think the, the most important thing we need to realize is the breadth, the scope, you know. It's not only influencing the media and public opinion, it's working in, through our elections, and defeating political parties who are who support what is essentially breaking the U.S. monopoly on our oil, and defeating those politicians and political parties who who, who want to get Canadian oil into overseas market. Yeah, and then the third part of it is the courts. Yeah. yeah. Well, the courts are the ones um, that 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 are the eventual decision makers, and if we look at court decisions, and most recently with Keystone XL. They've not been exactly favorable toward moving along with the pipelines. Now, there's something that I looked at a global news story about your um, your speaking in, in Alberta, and I found a quote from you that is really interesting. Uh, you said, and, and you've, you've shared your, your, your views and your research with the Alberta government. You've also addressed the Senate, so you've addressed the Canadian Parliament. But here's what you said. We've got, uh, we've got to ask themselves why Alberta has been singled out, even though it's the only jurisdiction in the world with a cap on emissions from oil sands, the only place with a carbon tax as it is, and even though the province has created a very large boreal forest reserve, why is there still a campaign against Alberta? What a great question, given what you said. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing, Roy, you know... Um a couple things happened here, right? So I've been following the money on this campaign now for eight years. There's a couple of intermediary funders. One of them is the Tides Foundation, and the other main one is the New Venture Fund. Tides alone has made more than 400 checks and wire payments as part of this campaign, okay? Now, about a year ago, the individual who's been running this for a decade, his name is Michael Marks, and he works out of San Francisco at a, at a charity called Corporate Ethics. And he wrote on the website that, I quote, from the very beginning, the campaign strategy was to landlock the oil sands, call them the tar sands, so the crude could not reach international markets where it could get a higher price per barrel. 
So for me, that was a turning point because that sort of explained why, in fact, you know, Premier Notley has done everything. She put on the carbon cap. She increased the carbon tax. She's created the world's largest boreal forest preserve. It's twice the size of Vancouver Island. It's huge. Premier Notley has done everything that the activists wanted. She's done it all and more. And yet the money for this campaign to land, now we know it's not just about the park and the tax and the cap. It's about landlocking the crude. So to me, this was a, a, a turning point in my, in my thinking of how we need to address this campaign and what we need to do to break the gridlock. Every Canadian should be hearing you. Every Canadian should be hearing what you have to say. And and you re, you retweeted uh, or retweeted out a link to a Globe Globe and Mail uh, opinion piece, editorial piece. Only new pipelines can close Canada's yawning oil price gap. Why don't people get it? What needs to be understood? Sure. Well, it's no wonder people don't get it because this this campaign's been going on for eight years and the industry itself hasn't wanted to talk about it. Okay, so it's no surprise that we are where we are. What we got to do is, you know, we can't change the past. Right. We, We can't we can't do anything about what hasn't been done. We can only learn from where we're at and go forward. So I think that what we need to do now is recognize that what's happening now is it's now in the courts, okay, that are that are going to be a series of constant roadblocks and junctions and, and um, you know, what we saw coming out of the Federal Court of Appeal in August and the recent ruling by the judge in Montana. But here's the thing. These court rulings are brought about. I'm not saying the judge was influenced by the agenda, but the agenda of the applicants, the funding of the applicants, okay, was part of this campaign to landlock the crude. So I, I've got to say, you know, take the First Nations, for example, right, who are receiving funding to stop, the, say, the Trans Mountain Project. How do they simultaneously do what they are funded to do by their American funders and stop the project? And simultaneously, how do they consult in good faith with the Crown, you know, I don't, and I don't know how a judge can actually instruct the Crown to meaningfully consult with the very same people who were funded to shut down that project. So I think that this is, we need to reconsider. Uh, I, I think there has to be a way to bring about a reconsideration of these, uh, of these rulings because, you know, the information, for instance, that I have from the American tax returns, uh, which unequivocally makes it very clear that these court rulings, particularly the Federal Court of Appeal ruling, was funded as part of this campaign to landlock the crude. I could I could read you what the what the organization says in their tax returns, how they make clear very, very clearly tell the IRS. They worked with lawyers to intervene in the regulatory review of the Kingdom Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline, instructed lawyers lawyers to bring judicial review proceedings against the NEB and the ultimate decision of the federal cabinet. That's about as clear as it gets. Mm-hmm. Yet in the judge's ruling she says simply that the applicants are not-for-profits. No mention of the fact that they are American, that they're not even from Canada, and that they are funded as a part of a campaign to sabotage the very same project on which the judge has instructed the Crown to, to consult with the First Nations. So I think some of these rulings, there's got to be a way. I, I really think right now it's the lawyers that need to, you know, put their heads together. And, and, and you know, we, we need a a thorough review here of whether justice is being served. Is this fair? Is this, you know, is this right? I, I don't begrudge anyone to appeal to the court. That's everyone's right, no matter who funds you. But was there funding and that were their interests 
properly disclosed? Did the judge even know? Yeah. I'd be curious. Yeah. Maybe it would if the judges were to ask some questions as well, it would be particularly good if our federal politicians, and I'm pointing specifically at this current government, were to take this issue as seriously as they must and not just drive forward their own agenda and try to sell it to Canadians with a lot of double talk. But that's my view of the political end of things. We have a minute left here. What do you want to say in that minute, Vivian? Well, you know, I think what we need to do uh, as Canadians that, are, that want to see the full potential of our country realized is we need to get organized, you know? Uh, citizens, industry associations, companies where there's leadership. What has been missing in the past is, a, is leadership. We've had a lack of leadership on this issue. Everyone's been pointing at everyone else hoping someone else would do something or hoping that it would just all fizzle out. Right. Well, it hasn't. And so, you know, we, we need those of us who want to see, uh, not only see the economic benefits, but the thing is, you know, this campaign is doing absolutely nothing for right. the environment. Yep. The oil is just coming from another country, most likely a country that doesn't do as well on environmental issues. And as, as you as pointed as out, what's happening in Alberta, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop this here, but we, you know we're going to talk again. And thank you so much for the time. It's fairquestions.typepad.com, fairquestions.typepad.com. Also, at fairquestions on Twitter, Vivian Krauss. You're the best. Thanks so much, Roy. Bye for now. Thanks, Vivian Krauss. If a democracy is to function, you need to, an educated populace, and you need to have an informed populace ready to make judicious decisions about who to grant power to and when to take it away, says Mr. Trudeau. Well... I found it interesting that J.J. McCullough tweeted, it's obvious what Trudeau's doing. The Canadian press is overwhelmingly pro-liberal, and Andrew Scheer has recently attempted to observe this fact. Trudeau must therefore portray all criticism of the press as both illegitimate and evil, and, and tweet, end quote. And also this, uh, Unifor Canada, which represents thousands of Canadian journalists, tweeted a photo message of its president and members preparing for the next election, and the caption is, Welcome to Andrew Shear's Worst Nightmare. Well, again, thousands of Canadian journalists are members of Unifor. I'm not making a direct line, not drawing a direct line between the two, but it's worth taking note of. J.J. McCullough joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He is Canadian. He's a Washington Post columnist, as you know, political cartoonist, political pundit. His website is thecanadaguide.com, and his YouTube channel is hashtag Save Your Internet. J.J., thank you for the time when Mr. Trudeau says we have to know who to have in power and who to get out of power and starts to equate that with supporting media. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with your message. Yeah, well, I mean, the one thing that I think we've seen time and time again with this prime minister is that a lot of his messaging is extraordinarily disingenuous. So in the same way that we may recall a while ago, I think I might have even talked about it on your show, is that he gave that speech at New York University where he talked about how important it is to, you know, tolerate a diversity of opinions and how we can disagree without being disagreeable. You know, a sort of philosophy that Trudeau just manifestly does not believe through his actions. It's the same thing with the press. You know, Trudeau is not sort of holding up the press as like that he wants to face criticism from the press or that he wants an impartial press or a press that's tough on him or fair on him. What he's saying is like, no, 
He's trying to demonize Andrew Scheer, who has recently been making noises about press bias, about the press having a liberal slant. And he's saying, like, you cannot do that. That is fundamentally illegitimate, Andrew Scheer. Never criticize the press because the press is perfect. And, you know, it's, it's just, like I said, it's disingenuous because it's obvious that Trudeau has a partisan interest in doing this. The press in this country, the political press, is overwhelmingly liberal, is overwhelmingly favorable to his agenda. And he would just prefer it if people would not observe that fact. And so he's just trying to demonize anybody that finds fault with the, with the journalism uh, establishment in this country. And yet, if I raise the issue that uh, many in media are left-leaning, that there's a liberal bent in, in headlines and stories from reporters, not just opinion journalists like me, but reporters, mm-hmm. I get pushed back immediately saying, oh, no, 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 that's not the case. Everything's completely objective. And I said to one uh, one political, at least one media professor uh, about a week ago, I said, look, it's been, it, it, the left-wing approach is so consistent, you people think it's mainstream. <laughs> that's, that, no, that's a very good, a very good posi- uh, ob- observation. I mean, anybody that doubts uh, press bias should just spend a bit of time following journalists on Twitter. You know, on Twitter, journalists are a lot less guarded about their opinions. They're a lot more sort of blunt in sort of just saying every thought that pops into their head, as people are wont to do on social media. And you see that just a lot of mainstream, like you said, like mainstream, you know, quote unquote, objective reporters, not opinion journalists, but people who are paid to just observe politics in a neutral fashion, will constantly just be sending out comments that, again, like imply that Trudeau is basically right like it's basically the good guy of the story of canadian politics you know yeah he might misstep and might do things like maybe he's not you know doing the marijuana perfectly maybe he's not doing the carbon tax perfectly but his agenda is broadly the correct one whereas the way that they frame and they interact with conservatives is that conservatives are basically like the bad guys the villains they're the ones that have to do a lot more to prove themselves worthy of power and are judged just with a much, much harsher, more skeptical standard than, than politicians on the left are. And like consistently. This, this bias. Day, yeah. day after day after day. Yes, and this, this is what bias is. And like a lot of people are oblivious to their own biases. You know, I think this is a broadly true phenomenon. But it, it goes to just, it, a lot of bias comes down to like, well, what do you take for granted as right? right? Like, what do you take for granted is just being the moral position. And that is an, unto itself an opinion. But a lot of journalists don't, don't kind of conceive of it that way. Like, they just think of, like, liberal progressive politics as just being correct politics, or, you know, just correct morally defensible positions. And sort of conservative politics, it's not a different way of looking at the world. It's not a different philosophy. It's just like those people are just kind of wrong and bad and dishonest and, like, sneaky and devious and all this kind of stuff. And that's, that's what really grinds my gears personally you know when i saw that uh, that tweet from unifor president jerry diaz and his team and they're talking about i had it here somewhere it's a welcome to andrew shears worst nightmare this is preparing for mm-hmm. the next election mm-hmm. i'm thinking okay unifor represents thousands of uh, canadian journalists some of them a half a dozen one or two maybe i've seen this why the hell isn't this a story yeah, it, it certainly should be a story. Why isn't it a story? Well, that's a, I mean, I suppose you could say because journalists don't have much of a vested interest in reporting on themselves or airing their own dirty laundry or holding themselves accountable. You know, there is a journalistic clique in this country that looks after its own interests. But it's, it's, worth, like, let's, it's worth deconstructing a little bit the nature of that ad. So what happened was that we may recall that McLean's magazine put a cover story of all of the leaders of the various conservative parties on the cover, you know, looking tense. And then the caption was, 
Justin Trudeau's worst nightmare. Right. And a lot of journalists got so uppity about this. Like, the idea that, like, oh, how dare a mainstream Canadian publication, you know, for even one second present conservative politicians in this country in a favorable light? Well, surely we need to quickly whip up some rebuttal. So what the Unifor folks did was that they created, yeah, exactly, a rebuttal in the form of a visual image that re- emulated the McLean's cover, but instead of conservative politicians, you know, it faces it has a bunch of, you know, of course. stern-faced union uh, yeah. <laughs> folks. And right? they are stern-faced. Yeah, and then it's like Shear's worst nightmare, right? So it's right. like, well, you know, if the politician, I mean, like, we, when we think about this, like, what is the message that this is sending? It says that, like, conservative politicians are kind of like the enemy and that it is the job of journalists to, like, fight against them. It is such a, it's so tone deaf and it just really reflects just exactly why Shear is perfectly justified in criticizing the media because this kind of stuff needs to be held accountable. It is not ethical for journalists to be this engaged in partisan politics and be that oblivious to that reality and why that's bad for our democracy. My advice to Andrew Shear is be like Doug Ford. Yeah. Yeah, or be like Stephen Harper. Or I mean, be like Stephen Harper. To, yeah, I mean, these, you know... He tries too hard. He, uh, uh, Andrew Shear tries too hard. He, he thinks he's going to get brownie points from people that hate him yep. they're not going to do it not going to happen matter. i mean you see this you see this again and again and again it doesn't matter how nice the conservative politician is how even keel he is what his personality is like he will always be portrayed as like some knuckle dragging you know troglodyte it doesn't matter how moderate he is and so you may as well just if you're going to take the criticism you may as well give back in kind you may, you as, may well. as well call it for what you see it you know yep. and i hope he does i mean i hope he does but you know Sheer, unfortunately, is just a fundamentally, I've met the man, he's a fundamentally moderate, temperate guy. He was a guy whose greatest ambition in life was to become Speaker of the House of Commons, you know, a moderating, sort of uh, gentle position. I, I, I sometimes worry that he just, he does lack the killer instinct of a Doug Ford or even of a Stephen Harper. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't have a killer instinct. I've talked to him no. many times. He's very likable. When you ask him a question, he tries so hard to please with the answer, he goes on forever. Yeah. Harper, I'd ask Harper, Stephen Harper a question. He'd provide an answer. I have an old trick. I stop talking. Um, I say nothing. When they, when they stop talking, uh, I say nothing. And they're uncomfortable with the, uh, with, the, with the, I shouldn't mention this. They're uncomfortable with the dead air. So they start talking again, the politicians. Mm-hmm. That's when they get themselves into trouble. Steve, <laughs> Stephen Harper recognized this and outweighed me. And so he mm-hmm. would answer a question. And he'd stop. And I wouldn't say anything. And he knew that eventually I'd have to start talking, and he'd, yeah. just, he'd just wait until I started again. There was one time where I did a 15-minute interview with Stephen Harper. I had about 12 questions for him. He answered them in seven minutes. <laughs> and then I said, so what do you want to talk about now, Prime Minister? Hockey? Yep, sure. <laughs> so we no, did. He was, he was a master. He was a he master was. Of, of playing that. And, I mean, it's because he fundamentally knew who he was as a person. I mean, exactly. He did a, he did a very interesting interview with, you know, uh, Ben Shapiro, the American conservative journalist, the other day. And you, you just were reminded of what, not only what, like, an intelligent and, and, you know, in my mind, brilliant and insightful man he was, but just, like, a great, you know, a great, somebody who understands how media works and right. understands how, what, what to do and what not to do to get the message that you want to get across. Yep. But, you know, Sheer is playing a, a confused game. And I, I think that it's, it's actually quite troubling. You know, I've talked to conservative-minded people across this country in all different walks of life. And there is a real, real crisis of confidence in his leadership. And I don't know if that can be overcome. I mean, ultimately, you are the person who you are. Yep. And you can try marketing stunts to, like, pitch you and, you know, try to sell the product. But, you know, like, there's an old saying about a bunch of dog food executives that are trying to market a product 
And then one of them pipes up and says, you know, maybe the dogs just don't like the food, right? There's a time in which <laughs> oh, you right. cannot sell an unsellable well said. product. Well said. JJ, thank you for the time. Thank you, sir. Great talking to you. JJ McCullough on The Roy Green Show. Check out his YouTube channel, uh, hashtag Save Your Internet. His website is thecanadaguide.com. And uh, he's on Twitter as well. Anne-Marie Gallo is back with us. She was with us yesterday. She is a registered social worker, psychotherapist, and she is also a chronic pain patient. Let me just very quickly uh, tell you what was going on if you weren't with us. Anne-Marie sent a request to Ottawa by way of email to the Minister of Health in uh, June of this year, asking for the minister to corroborate what she was claiming, and that is that prescription medications, prescription opioid medications, were contributors to the opioid crisis. Well, she got nothing back. Nothing, 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 nothing. And then we heard a conversation that Anne-Marie recorded with a fellow by the name of Pierre, who works in the Ministry of Health, and so many people were just infuriated emails. The emails Anne-Marie were uh, just off the scale last night. People furious about this about how you were treated. And when you, yesterday, as we finished, you said, we didn't get to hear the best part of it. And you're right, we didn't. So do you want to hear it? Are you ready? I'm ready. Is there something you want to say before I play it? Well, things got ugly. What else can I say? Okay, so let's do this. Let's play, as continuation, the last three minutes of Anne-Marie Gatto talking to somebody, a representative of the Minister of Health, and she was trying to get information on when this fellow would get back to her. Listen. I will call you. So now you have long distance and you can call out. I will call you. So I can expect a call from your office at Monday. I will call you next week for sure. No, I would like a day, please. I've been waiting an awful long time for this, so I I would like a day. day. You can pick a day when you can call, Uh, and you can just give uh, me an update on what's happening. I will call you next week for sure, ma'am. That's the answer you're going to give me? I have school, I have my personal life, so I cannot give you a date. I will call you 100% next week. You are an employee there, yes? I will call you 100% next week, ma'am. These are not personal questions. I don't understand your hesitancy. It's because you don't, do you not understand what I'm asking you? These are not personal questions. And how can you find a letter that I'm sent when you haven't even asked me where I sent it to or what my email address is? You have you have no way of doing anything without that information. Uh, we will find. I have your name. What I need name. is to talk to someone who's in a managerial position there because this is getting me I nowhere. No, I'm not happy with that answer. I want the name of whoever you report to, some sort of manager that I can speak to to get real answers because this is just nonsense, really, and it's wasting my time. I don't have a manager. Everybody has a manager. How can you not have a manager? I don't have a manager right here, right now, ma'am. No, I understand you don't have one right here, right now. I know it's Friday and it's getting late. I know that. I just want the name because I just want to speak to someone who might be able to actually help me. I've been waiting a very long time and talking my head off and it's getting nowhere. Well, I, I so don't I would just like the name. Right now. And, um... You don't report to anyone. Yeah, um, okay. yeah, like I said, ma'am, I will definitely give you a call back next week. 
with um, the information, with all, with all the information. Again, you didn't even take down my info or where it was sent to. How can you ask about something when you don't have the backup info? Because I just I have, want the name I of someone else to speak number. with. I have your full name. Sorry, no, your number. I do have your number and I have your full name. So, uh, Anne-Marie. That's right. <laughs> I will call you. I will call you. Yes. I have never in my life experienced such a ridiculous, arrogant, ignorant representative of any office anywhere. And this is the same guy who said to you at the beginning of the phone call we played yesterday, he didn't have the capacity or the ability or the system to call you long distance. Right. That's why he didn't call me back, because the minister's office doesn't have long distance plans. And then what did we just hear him say? I will call you. I yeah. will call you. Yes, yes. He wouldn't give me a date, but he's definitely going to call. So, yeah, I guess he, he's, so he hasn't been on the phone then. He hasn't called you. Oh, what a surprise. Yeah, what a surprise. So for four months now, going on five months, you've waited just for the Minister of Health to back up what she claims. That's correct. I've been waiting, and it's always just fallen on deaf ears. Uh, I've never gotten a response, um, except well, I've had non-response, I've had a lying response, and I've had a hostile response, but still no answer. Well, you know, you know this, uh, this, this broadcast is going to get their attention. I hope so, Roy. Oh, yeah. It'll get their attention because they, every government, every agency, they have these transcription services or they have audio services where they can listen to or they can read transcripts of anything that's said about them on the air or written about them in, in, in print journalism. They all have access to that. So they'll be aware of it. And uh, I'm going to check with you off the air in a couple of days to see if you heard back from someone. I would be surprised. Your I question, hope I'm proven wrong. Your question was entirely relevant, yes. substantive, important, and the minister should answer. And I have a gut feel they're making stuff up on the fly. Well, it sure seems that way when there's no backup to anything. Yep. I mean, if I can just say quickly that now if, as the government says, chronic pain patients need to be protected from themselves and their doctors, okay. Let's just have the evidence as to why that is. Okay, my dear, I, I got I have got to go, and your phone line isn't the best, but we did, did hear what he had to say. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you, Roy. And Marie Gatto. Thought long and hard about uh, whether I was going to do this segment or not. My initial uh, feeling was no, it really doesn't add much to what we usually do on the air, and then I thought, well, there's lots of people who may be affected, lots of people who may believe many people will have interest and it was unusual and it left me with lots of questions because ultimately when it comes to the issue of the afterlife or spirits or spiritualism or anything that has to do with life after death or continuance of life, I'm a skeptic. Some people would say I'm the skeptic's skeptic. But I was invited by a friend uh, two weeks ago to attend um, an evening at uh, the Spiritualist Society of Burlington, Ontario. And medium Andy Bing was going to be there. He's uh, British. And so I went. I was, I was interested because um, before my wife passed away, she liked to watch um, 
fellow by the name of John Edward. He used to be on television, um, American uh, medium. And uh, so I thought, well, yeah, I'll go. And so I just want to set this up. There were about maybe I'm guessing a hundred hundred plus people in in the in the in the hall. And uh, Mr. Bing was at the front, and he started to connect with with people. He he surmised he felt something, and I shouldn't be putting words in his mouth, but he connected with people. I'm I'm not going to put words in his mouth. I'm going to talk to him. Uh, Andy, thank you for joining us from the UK. It's andybing.com. Uh, you're a medium. You're a spiritualist medium. How do you describe yourself? A spiritualist medium. That's correct. Okay. So you're at this uh, at the at the evening in Burlington. There's a hundred odd people uh, out in in front of you, and you were doing things. You were connecting with people, which in a way that surprised me. Before you got to me, and I didn't expect to uh, be actually be speaking with you that night. I did. Um, what is it that happens, Andy, when you, when you're in the in the in the hall and the, or people are there? Do you need people who are receptive to be in in the hall with you, or does that not matter? Um, it doesn't matter. I, I, I really welcome skeptical people to come to uh, the demonstrations of mediumship, mm-hmm. um, but it has to be the right sort of skepticism. Um, a person that's willing to look at the evidence and the experiences that they're witnessing and to follow the evidence rather than being a sort of militant, dogmatic skeptic who ignore what's in front of them. Well, uh, as, as I, and I said, I'm a skeptic, but it was impossible for me to ignore what you were telling me. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Because you, you and I, we'll get to that in a second. But what is it that happens to you when you're, in the, when you're standing at the front of the hall? And, you know, when people lose somebody they love, somebody they care about, family member, friend, they want to know that there's some connection. So many people would be receptive to the idea that that they might hear from their loved one or their friend. How do you communicate, or do you communicate? What happens to you that allows you to say to some to to, to present a scenario that someone in the audience says, "I think you're talking about me." What happens to you? Um, I think a lot of people have this idea that, it, that it's like the film Ghost. Remember with with Patrick Swayze and right, Goldberg, but right. it's it's nothing like that. Um, I have the 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 gift really of, of being able to move my awareness beyond the physical five senses. And as I change my state of consciousness, which slightly, you know, it's not um, in a trance state or in a sleep state or anything. I'm, as you know, I'm fully normal, a uh, normal waking state really. Um, I start to sense and have a and feel the presence of of people that aren't physically there and um, I perceive and I, I receive different um, feelings different pictures uh, different different sounds and words that I have to interpret to really tell the life story or or part of the life story of, of those people whose experiences and 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 really mind which I, I consider to be uh, personality uh, consciousness intelligence um, I'm becoming aware of, of, of this essence of, of the person and I'm able to recount experiences and memories that they've shared with people who, who are still alive. There were people there that night and I remember one, in, one, one small incident um, that had nothing to do with me. You said to someone, I, and this is not the kind of thing that you would 
plan for. By the way, nobody asked me any questions when I walked in. Mr. Bing didn't know that I was there. He didn't know me from anybody else in there. Nobody knew anything about me. I just walked in with my friend, and 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 there we were. So you said something to someone about goldfish in a plastic bag, the person you were talking to. And he said, no, 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 that doesn't ring a bell. And he said, just think about it. And he, you brought something else up, that, and that person finally said, oh, yeah. And that happened more than once. But I remember the goldfish in the plastic bag. So I want to... I want, to, I want to get out what you said to me or what you were talking about. You said over in this section of the hall, uh, and if people are shaking their heads and wondering, I, look, I would be doing the same thing if it hadn't happened to me. Uh, you said somebody here has lost a spouse who was a nurse and died of cancer. So all of those things can happen, and that was happened to my wife. And you said there's breast cancer involved, but the person didn't die of the breast cancer. There was another cancer. So the fact is my wife died of a very virulent cancer, and earlier in life she'd had breast cancer and uh, had overcome it for many years. It didn't factor into the cancer that, have, that affected her later and took her life. You then started talking about um, the first flower that, I, that, that had been given to this person had been... Uh, pressed and dried in a certain way. You knew the color of the paper. I think you knew the, the type of box it was in. And you were bang on. Uh, it was a rose. It was red and black paper, and it was boxed. Nobody would have known that. You subsequently uh, made some comments about her to me that only I would have known, not her, uh, not anyone else, only I would have known and she would have known. And then you said, and I think you, looking at me, you said, I'm getting the, f the sense that you were wearing uh, a chain with both wedding rings until very recently. And I was, until about two weeks before. Nobody would have known that. Nobody could have known that. There were a series of, 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 of moments, Andy, series of incidents, a series of events, occurrences, nobody would have known about, could have known about, you brought them up. What can I say? I mean, I understand that what I do is, for some people, is quite a controversial topic. Um, but I mean this with the most genuine of respect. I was aware of it and, and knew that information because the reality is, is that she's still very much conscious and very much alive and is, is, a, is a real person. Um, you know, I was a medium that was very sceptical of my own mediumship for many years. You know, I've, um, I'm a trained historian and um, studied philosophy for a number of years. So you know, my education was all about critical thinking, about looking at the evidence, about, but also being open to the idea that, that knowledge and, and truth about the universe and the way that we explore things doesn't have to just be limited by science but there's other ways in which we can we, we can know things and we can understand things um so i was i was somebody that's i've always been critical but over the years um the only conclusion that i that i can come to and, and of course it, i'm in a, pri in a privileged position because i exp 
I actually have the experiences as well as witnessing things that that you've seen week in week out that the only conclusion that I can re- rationally draw is that 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 world that's what what we call the spirit world um is a reality do we all have the ability to a greater or lesser degree everybody has the ability to have an awareness of the spirit world which, which is why you know if you ask people and and perhaps you know what my job is really is not to prove that the spirit world exists it's to make people question for themselves mm-hmm. and to go on a personal spiritual journey and when they do you'll find that and you start talking about this subject you find that most people at some point in their life have, have had what they term a spiritual or spooky experience mm-hmm. and everybody has that ability of course like everything else the degree to which that awareness can unfold and and develop depends on the individual and the natural potential that's already present within the person. Right. Well, and you know, we all have we, we, we all have hunches, and and we I'm sure many people have said to out loud, if if I follow my hunch, I'm okay. If I if I go against the hunch that I have to do something or not do something, if I just ignore the hunch. Something bad happens or something negative happens. If I follow my hunches, I'm okay. And I wonder if the two are related. Very much. I mean, I think we, we have and live um, in, in an external... We have this external world all around us, but we very much live in and have an internal world as well. Mm. And it's this internal aspect of ourselves that we very rarely look at, explore, and, and understand fully. But how did, people, you, how did you know those things about, about me? You also said that when I was preparing my wife's clothing to give to her sisters and cousins, that I found a note in a pocket. Now, that's not that unusual. Finding a note in a piece of clothing is not that unusual. But you knew what was on the note. Yeah. How do you know that? I mean, um, because your wife was communicating with me, and she knew it because she wrote it. Hmm. That's the only explanation. Come on, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Um, some people, you know, they they would say, well, actually, what and what Andy's doing is is, is reading the minds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you argue that point, you have to concede that that consciousness exists outside of the brain, which defies science as well. The other thing that we have to um, remember with these sorts of experiences is that it's not just the evidence that's important, but it's also the the qualitative experience that you have that runs alongside and that you can actually feel the presence and the emotion that comes with that information. Well, you have left me with a lot of questions. Um, I'm, I can't say that I have the same degree of skepticism that I had. I'd be a fool if I did that. Uh, I don't know how, I mean, I, I know what you're telling me and I, part of my brain says, ignore him. The other part of the brain says, don't be stupid because you know what happened. Um, you've left me with a lot of questions. You left me very interested. And Andy, thank you so much for actually you. Yeah, thank you for what you did for me. And uh, thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. All the best. AndyBing.com. And he does travel, and he will um, consult with you if you wish. I'm not. I'm not getting anything for doing this. I'm sure I'll get a lot of emails telling me what a dope I am, but. Um, I, I can't ignore what happened. It happened. He knew things that nobody could have known. How do you answer that? How do you deal with that? 
I wanted to just share that with you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 